With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Welcome back. Uh, today we have a special announcement. Uh, we're looking for a host to join Around the Coin. We want someone who is excited about cryptocurrency and generally incredibly inquisitive, engaging, can hold a conversation, and wants to be a host consistently. So if this is you or somebody you know, uh, it's not a paid opportunity. Uh, but it is a great way to meet other founders and people working on incredibly interesting projects in crypto. It'll be up to you. You know, you can find other guests. Uh, we'll invite you to interview other guests. It's a great opportunity. So reach out to me on Twitter if you're interested or send me an email and would love to speak. So today's show is sponsored by Otter Labs. Otter, O-T-T-E-R, like the cute little furry, watery animal, is a super simple software developer staffing augmentation company, which is a fancy way of saying that they help you hire inexpensive mid-level or senior software, software developers, mostly from Argentina. Uh, I'm one of the founders of Otter. After my last company, Home Hero, we raised $23 million in venture capital. We built a sizable team of developers in Argentina. And when we sold the company, the acquiring business didn't want to hire the developers. So we formed Otter as a container to help place the developers with founder friends of mine looking to hire. And that just kind of snowballed over the years. So if you're interested in, in hiring developers, reach out. Uh, Argentina, where, we, where our network is, is a great place. They've got great engineering schools, it's on a similar time zone, very fluent English, and they're much less expensive because of the inflation rates and other challenges in their economy. So reach out to us at hireotter.com if you're looking for developers. Also, and lastly, we have Redeem, spelled R-E-D-E-E-E-M, dot com, which is the fastest and safest way to trade your Bitcoin and many other cryptocurrencies as well for discounted gift cards and vice versa. So if you've got gift cards lying around the house and you want to exchange those for Bitcoin or you've got cryptocurrency you want to cash in and get Amazon gift cards or other gift cards, check out Redeem. Sign up. You can post offers. You can buy cards instantaneously. They've got Walmart, eBay, Best Buy, Target, Amazon, you name it. It's on there. And it is great. So redeem.com. And today on the show, we have Kyle Samani, who is a brilliant crypto investor. The conversation was engaging, fast-paced. Kyle is a super witty guy, so throughout the conversation, I tried to keep up with him. And if you have any feedback, and again, if you're looking to be a host on the show, reach out. We'd love hearing from you. And without further ado, enjoy, enjoy the show. Ah! 
All right, we're back with another show. We have Kyle Samani on, who is the managing partner at Multicoin Capital. Kyle, what's up, man? Thanks for jumping on the show. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me on the show. Pleasure to be here. Yeah. Uh, so let's dive right in. Do you want to give a little background on yourself and kind of your path into uh, finance or more specifically crypto uh, managing Multicoin? Yeah, happy to give a quick introduction. Um, so I was born and raised in Austin, Texas, which is where the firm is based today. Um, my dad's a computer software, a computer scientist, and so I grew up around computers. I had the good fortune of, of starting to program when I was about 10 or 11 years old. My dad pushed me into it, and I'm very grateful that he did. Um, over high school, just kind of, you know, did some games and other, like, small things. When it came time to go to college, I went to NYU and studied finance, thinking I was going to go down the Wall Street career track. While I was in college, realized that was not my life calling. Um, and so I got really excited about tech companies and, and early-stage tech and VC and all that stuff. And so after college, I uh, launched my first tech company called Pristine in May of 2013. Pristine built software for Google Glass for surgeons. Uh, I know Google Glass was kind of a silly consumer product, but it was actually a really interesting service for surgeons because surgeons work with their hands all day. They're sterile, they're gloved up. And so uh, we built stuff for surgeons that we you know, would um, look up medical record information and capture documentation and live streaming and kind of the, the suite of tools you'd expect. Um, so grew that business to a few million in revenue, raised about five million in venture, and then Google killed Google Glass, uh, which, as you might imagine, was a problem for my business. And so um, after that, I pivoted the company, and ultimately the company was acquired for IP and talent. And um, so I had to figure out what I was going to do next in my life. And uh, in March of 2016, I discovered this thing called Ethereum. I had heard of Bitcoin previously, but was never terribly interested in it. Uh, Ethereum really pulled me into crypto because uh, I, I understood that it was an open and decentralized platform. Um, and I had felt the pain of platform risk with Google. Uh, I, I, Google literally ripped the rug out from under me with glass. And so I understood that pain in a very real way. Uh, and so Ethereum really uh, spoke to me because of that. And so over the course of 16, I just started like going from one hour a week to five hours a week to 20 hours a week. And, and soon I realized I couldn't think about anything other than, I couldn't think about anything other than crypto. And so by the spring of 2017, uh, Tushar, who's my best friend and my business partner, uh, made the decision to launch Multicoin in May of 17. Uh, and we ultimately, our hedge fund went live October 1st, 2017. Wow. So uh, so rewinding a second, Pristine was your first, so you were straight out of school and started this company? Uh, I worked brief for about a year out of, after college in a, in a company called VersaSuite. They built, they built software for hospitals, electronic medical records. So I was in the health IT space uh, for about a year, and then uh, Google announced Glass, and Glass was the, the sexy new shiny thing, and I really liked toys, and so that was just kind of a, a natural fit for me. Yeah, I remember their video was so kick-ass. It was like the, the guy on the on the roller coaster, like flying through the air, and it really felt like this was the the early days of something that's going to be hugely transformational. It's, it was kind of for me a gut check to think like. Technology doesn't, even if it has all the vision and all the components, it sometimes just doesn't turn into reality. I don't know. Why did they end up killing it? Do you remember? I mean, the consumer adoption never happened. Um, and so eventually they had to pull the plug on it. Um, the big challenge with glass, and I, you know, I still follow the smart glass space from a distance. I'm not into it anymore, but I keep an eye on it. But I was one of the early pioneers. Um, and... It's very, 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 very difficult to deliver usable experiences through the, the glass type interface. Uh, it's extremely difficult. Um, it's also not clear to me how it's actually better 
than your smartphone for most of the common things we do. Broadly speaking, right, you do you do reads and writes. Um, like every every application you use is, is database in the cloud, and so you either read stuff from it or write stuff to it. Uh, on the right side, like having a keyboard and a camera are the two primary inputs. Uh, it's not clear, clear that glasses are better for, for those. I mean, it's like mildly more convenient for camera, maybe, depending on what you're trying to take a picture of. Um, and then on the read side, which is actually what you do most of on your phone, um, it's very unclear that that reading is better in a glasses format. And so uh, I'm, I'm pretty skeptical that, that that's going to take off in some sort of broad-based general way that's going to be usable for all of consumers. Now, I think there will definitely be lots of weird, interesting, cool, specialized niche use cases. But um, like, will we all like drop our phones one day and like go to glasses only? Uh, I'm, I'm very skeptical of that outcome. Yeah, yeah. Although as much as I hate to walk and, and be on my phone at the same time, it does feel like it almost be more risky for me to be staring into the, uh, the, the augmented reality world where I have <laughs> overlays on top of my reality. It's interesting because my, my wife's a surgeon and she, she works at UC, or she did work at UCLA. She's now at Harvard and she talks about the technology that they introduce. And I'm always, I'm always so unimpressed. It always feels like what I see, I live because I was in the, the healthcare, uh, you know, my last company being a venture backed healthcare company. And I see the tech world and what they're backing, what they're working on. And then I see what's actually happening in, in doctor's offices and the hospitals. It just feels like two worlds that barely have any overlap at all, which is a whole separate conversation in and of itself, but it's interesting. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so tell me, so Multicoin, so your initial thesis diving into it was generally we're going to invest in companies specifically, or did you kind of go through some iteration on what the model was going to be, whether it's managing people's money, investing in tokens specifically, or investing in companies or some combination of, of the two? Yeah, so uh, Multicoin runs two funds. We have our hedge fund and our venture fund. Our hedge fund launched October 1st, 2017, and our venture fund we launched in July of 2018. Uh, our hedge fund, basically the investable universe for our hedge fund is anything that is on coinmarketcap.com or anything that's likely to be listed on coinmarketcap.com in the pretty near future. Um, it's basically our investable universe. So, you know, coinmarketcap says there's 2,000 cryptocurrencies or whatever. That's not a real number. Realistically, our investable universe, uh, adjusting for liquidity, adjusting for like the reality of like, is this thing actually for real or like interesting? It's something like 100 names. Um, hmm. So that's what our hedge fund invests in. That's a long, short hedge fund, all research-driven. Uh, we don't do any algorithmic stuff. We're not a market maker or arbitrage or anything. Uh, we do research, and we buy stuff, and we short stuff. Um, mm -hmm. And then on the venture side, it's pretty typical what you'd expect. We invest in tokens, tokens that have not yet launched, and companies that are building in the, in the crypto space. Um, mm. And so, the, yeah, we manage those two funds. It's a single investment team running across both vehicles. Uh, and we, we have a lot of, lot of fun stuff that we get to look into and ultimately bet on. So when you say it's a single investment theme running across two vehicles, break break that down for me in layman's terms. What what specifically do you mean? Right. So those two funds obviously have like legally different mandates or different structures. They're quite mm -hmm. separately pool, different pools of capital. Um, we, you know, like if you look at like Tiger Global or one of the big like late stage private equity shops or hedge funds, like those guys, I mean, obviously their funds are much larger than ours, but they their private market teams and public market teams are basically different teams. Um, they obviously share information about, you know, valuations and competitive dynamics and whatever. But like at the end of the day, the people who are debating and arguing things on the private market investments are typically a separate team than the public market. Um, we at Multicoin have a single investment team, which is really six people um, that like makes all decisions across both vehicles. 
obviously when we're making those decisions, yeah. we have to, you know, we're explicit, right? Like we understand the mandate of the vehicle that we're investing out of, um, and we have to kind of adjust accordingly. Uh, right? We're not going to put something with a 10 year lockup in our hedge fund as a simple example. Hmm. Hmm. And so does that play out in reality where the investment arm into the companies themselves becomes the kind of research and uh, knowledge acquisition piece? And then you use what you learn there to just basically divide up your portfolio across the tokens that make the most sense? Or is there something more to it? Or how, how does that, I'm imagining that's how it works, but <laughs> tell me where I'm wrong. Yeah, so idea generation in private markets is like less of a problem. I mean, like if you're in the private markets as an entrepreneur and you need to raise money and you're in the crypto space, like you probably know who we are and like our door is open. It's very easy to knock on the door, like tell us who you are. Um, that's, that's pretty easy. Um, so idea for us, idea generation on the private market side is kind of sort of not a thing. I mean, occasionally we do come up with a thesis and then we'll go try and find a company, but like you just knock on the door and we're going to answer the door. Um, plug market side is, is trickier because it's just like, if there's coinmarketcap.com, right? There's just hundreds of names here. Like what are these things? And they're moving around and you know, they're all working on stuff and releasing new things. And so idea generation there is, is trickier. Um, we don't have a, like a super formal process on this. Other than like, we're all reading the news and all seeing what's happening. We pretty frequently internally force ourselves to like write overviews of sectors, um, just to force ourselves to A, make sure we're being comprehensive and we know who are all the names in some sector, and then B, make sure we're developing the right frameworks on how to think about those sectors. Uh, we do like that as on almost a weekly cadence, probably someone internally is doing something to that effect. Um, mm. Make sure we're being, at least we have a directional view. Like either, we need to have a view of either we like this thing, we don't like this thing, or we don't have opinions, but we want to be clear like which of those three views we hold for every given asset kind of sort of at all times. Um, mm. uh, and obviously some sub segment of those will end up actually putting on a position either long or short. Um, so that's kind of how we run through managing the book at a high level. Huh. From, from relative to the other field, let's call it the crypto hedge funds being the field. Where, where do you feel multi-coin has a, a contrarian uh, hypothesis or view with regard to the, to the crypto crypto investments? I'd say a few. I think we're, we are pretty known for being pretty loud and pretty um, opinionated in our views relative to probably most of our peers. So I'll give a couple of examples where that those opinions diverge. Um, I think right now um, the hot sector in crypto is DeFi or decentralized finance. Um, we think DeFi is a big deal and it's going to matter. Uh, but we also think that crypto is going to be useful for things beyond just DeFi. Um, right now, there's now a probably half a dozen or so, you know, good size, uh, well-run, like smart guys who are running basically DeFi-only funds. Um, and that and that's really kind of sucking gear out of the room today. And um, I, I'm just like, I look at like trust minimization as a, as a vector of software. And like, it's very clear to me that like that vector extends far beyond just um, financial contracts. And so uh, we have made some very aggressive bets in what I'll call real world things. So it's not just moving money around in a more efficient way. And not, again, I don't mean to minimize the value of moving money around. That's super important for mm -hmm. capitalism and humanity. But um, like a, a big investment we made about 18 months ago, I was in a company called Helium. Um, Helium is building a decentralized wireless network. So if you think about like a building, a, building a, well, if you think about building a telecom network today, um, if you're Verizon or AT&T or whatever, you, call up, you know, if you want to build a network, you'd like look at a map of the city, you like think, where, you, where am I going to put my towers? You call up all the landowners, you rent the land, you go build a bunch of towers, 
Then you run a bunch of backhaul to those towers. You get a bunch of hard guys with hard hats to do that. Uh, and then you build a massive marketing customer support arm on top of all that to sell wireless service. And um, that, like, that's fine. Helium, basically, their vision is to say, look, anyone can buy commodity hardware um, at, like off the internet. Uh, they can plug it in at home using the existing internet connection at home, have an antenna, a little hotspot, uh, create radio waves, and then any device walking by that wants to use those radio waves can pay per byte of data. Um, and so if you look at like the cost structure of the system, right, like it's a totally different cost structure. Um, you get rid of the labor, you get rid of the land, you get rid of the proprietary hardware, like you just remove like a massive amount of cost out of the system. And so the Helium Network's been live since August 1st of last year, so it's about one year old now. Um, there's, I think, 5,000 hotspots live on the Helium Network today. If you go to network.helium.com, you'll see it there. Uh, they'll blow past 10,000 by the end of this year. Um, and they're now covering, uh, basically, the, the meaningful majority of the U.S. population is now covered by Helium hotspots. Um, and really? So, wow. Yeah, that's all live today. And that is all. And now the demand side is just starting to onboard. Like, they just started ramping up like two months ago of, of uh, end kind of users using this thing. And so... That's the, those are the kinds of what I'll call real world use cases that I'm super excited about um, that we mm. like we made a really, really big bet on Helium. So in their case, the the play for cryptocurrency is just the, the payment, the decentralization and payment portion of it. So I can buy, can you buy one of these devices and just set it up in your apartment? Yeah. So, and then based on who streams it, you get paid? Um, that's directionally correct. So. Uh, yeah, if you go to helium.com, you can like buy a hotspot. I think they're they're all sold out. You have to pre-order for the next batch. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, like anyone can buy them. Uh, if you go to network.helium.com, you'll see a live map in the U.S. today. They've already started taking pre-orders for Europe and China as well. So it'll start rolling out globally here pretty soon. Um, the reason this is a blockchain um, is because uh, a couple of reasons. One, um, you want to incentivize people to create hot like to deploy hotspots and keep hotspots running, even if no one is using the network. Like there's, there's option value to the world of knowing there's coverage, even if the coverage is not being used. Um, or like you don't pay for Verizon because it only works in New York city, you pay for Verizon. Cause like you expect as you drive from New York DC to Boston or whatever, whatever, like you're going to have service the whole way, even if you don't use it 99% of the time. So, um, in, in, in a decentralized network, you have a really hard problem of like, how do you know someone is actually providing coverage, um, where they say they're providing coverage. Um, Right. And so like there's a whole system of like creating these challenges and proof of coverage and proof of location and a bunch of pretty, pretty complicated ideas. But the, the net reason all of those things exist is because people who run these hotspots need to prove they're providing radio coverage where they say they are. And so the blockchain is kind of the court, the, the coordination layer for all of that. Um, and then the other thing, the, benefit, the other benefit the blockchain provides is a payment rail, uh, as you suggested. Mm, yeah, it makes sense. Where did, do you remember where you stood on net neutrality when that was controversial in like 2017, 2018? Um, do you remember that big debate? I feel like that was the most popular debate at the time when that came around. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm a pretty firm believer in net neutrality and, and openness. Um, I don't want ISPs, you know, doing weird stuff. I don't want Congress doing weird stuff here. Uh, I'm pretty pretty big believer there. Seeing all, you know, the recent TikTok, WeChat stuff with Trump and China, um, you know, just further reinforces that in, in my view. But but doesn't, net, I mean, net neutrality, what, what always, I mean, it kind of struck me as being like a, a conflicting idea that most of Silicon Valley, I observed, was pro-net neutrality, which actually means they're in favor of stronger regulations for technology and, and the internet, as opposed to less oversight and government regulations. 
which was kind of counterintuitive to me. I, I, I would have thought that we could anticipate something like helium coming around and saying like, look, we're not going to have the government mandate where and when and how much and how much it's going to cost for these companies like Verizon, AT&T, the ISPs to set up uh, networks. And instead, we're going to believe that in the future, there's going to be you know, leapfrog technologies that we can't predict. But that very much wasn't the case. And helium kind of proves the point that there's some technology you just can't anticipate coming. And then it comes and it's like it makes old regulation irrelevant. Um, right. So I mean, that, that's I one angle. I, I, I look at net neutrality and look, I don't know the exact details of like what I call it the left generally was like supporting um, in terms of specific implementations of it. But like, I think of net neutrality laws like the First Amendment. Like the First Amendment is like a law that says we're not going to stop you from doing these other things, right? And I, I think of it as kind of like a defensive law um, in, in that sense. So although it is weird to like see the roles reversed, I don't think that's like necessarily bad. I agree it's um, counterintuitive as you kind of suggested, but that's okay. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, I love seeing things like helium come around because it, it, if you have the, I view regulation as, as doing uh, more harm than good, generally speaking, historically. But uh, really, the, the the dark side of it is that they do more harm while intending to do good by implementing rules that prevent innovation that we couldn't have seen coming. And uh, you know, helium seems like an example of that, where we couldn't necessarily have seen something like this coming. At least, you know, maybe the bleeding edge innovators and investors like yourself. But I don't think this was anywhere near like in the in the ether of the politicians by any means you know there it was like hey we have to have uh, a certain number of isps in an area otherwise there's going to be you know big oversight and uh crackdowns so yeah it's that's interesting um <laughs> i remember everyone just being so upset that 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 the regulation was not passed that net neutrality did not uh come into fruition um yeah, I remember Sanjeev Pai was the uh, FCC commissioner at the time, and and really like waving that flag, which seemed seemed so seemed so interesting or contradictory to me. Um, but uh, yeah, I think do you do you see? I mean, just while we're on this topic, have you followed the SpaceX uh, Starlink project? Uh, I have. Yeah, um, I mean that's one of the things that like you could have never forecast before, um, right? And and so. It's crazy how fast they got that thing up. I mean, they're like, I remember they launched that project, like it feels like less than two years ago and already they have hundreds of satellites in there. And every time I turn, it's like every week they have a hundred new satellites floating around in space. Yeah, I mean, that, that's the kind of like, SpaceX is gonna completely change the economics of internet coverage and, and global internet access because it's just orders of magnitude cheaper to do it that way than it is to run a bunch of cable under the sea and around you know the roads and stuff. Um, and so uh, I'm, I'm super excited about space, SpaceX. SpaceX, uh, Starlink is, is, I'd say like, uh, directionally is not the right word. I'd say is, is ethos aligned with crypto and that like it's about decentralization. Um, that sounds kind of funny to say because it's like one company like building the whole thing. But the flip side is that like the internet coverage is by definition decentralized. Like me having internet coverage in Austin is useless for you having internet coverage in San Francisco. Uh, and so... Um, you need to have it, like you just need to blanket everything with internet coverage. Um, and this is just by far the most cost-effective way to do it. Like if you just look at basic physics, um, it's pretty clear that this is the ultimate solution. And so um, I'm incredibly excited about it. And I'm, I'm hoping there's gonna be 
uh, some second secondary and tertiary spillover effects uh, into crypto in like looking at helium as a, as a kind of instructive example of people kind of mashing these two things together, right? Where you got space, mm. Starlink beaming some stuff down from the sky, then you're going to have like local, you know, like st stations that like collect that and then like retransmit on like a localized basis. Um, like that's the the vision and model I would hope for. And, you know, hopefully there's can be an, an economic payment rail or kind of a coordination layer to make all that happen. Uh, that's certainly yeah. of interest for us and one where we would like to make, I'm sure, some very large bets in the coming years. Yeah, yeah. Not necessarily on Starlink, you're saying, but the companies that can build maybe on top of it or in some way using that technology. Exactly, right? Like you, if you take the Helium model for what I'll call last mile, like the problem with Starlink is that like your cell phone is never going to talk directly to Starlink um, because you're like the battery required to send stuff up to satellites is just too much energy consumption. And so like it's never going to go on your phone. Starlink doesn't replace front haul wireless. Starlink replaces backhaul. And so um, like Starlink will, you know, blanket the globe with black backhaul coverage, but you still need to get front haul. And so there's going to be a lot of interesting opportunities to create decentralized, localized front haul, um, where it's like in it kind of runs on the same general economic model as something like Helium, um, right? Like I'm like almost certain that's going to happen, and like we are going to make some big bets there, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Um, what, what ideas are you kind of working through, thinking about like what your uh, thesis is, is there, is there particular sectors of the economy or sectors of the crypto area where, uh, you're, you're like unsure about how things are going to play out and you're uh, like on the tip of the spear of figuring out how things are forming. Uh, I'm sure there are, but well, yeah, what comes to mind? Yeah. So te telecom is my, my favorite example, helium being, um, our, our big bet public bet there. We've made another bet in the telecom space as well. Um, it's kind of the opposite of helium in a lot of ways. Uh, but still like a novel crypto angle to it. Um, that was not disclosed yet, but we've made two pretty big bets there. Um, or I expect we're going to make more in the coming years. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I think the uh, the opportunity around what I'll call uh, decentralized computation of various forms um, is pretty interesting. Um, it's decentralized compute is an extremely hard problem. Um, there's people approaching it from different angles, whether it's zero knowledge driven or whether it's um, kind of latent hardware driven, but um, I think there's going to be some people who make some big, big breakthroughs in that space. We have one bet uh, publicly in that area called LifeCare that we're pretty excited about. Um, they're just using kind of a decentralized compute model to do uh, video transcoding mm -hmm. and really just undercut Google and Amazon and Microsoft on, on GPU transcoding costs. Um, so I'm excited about that kind of layer of the stack. Um, and then just like financial, Would you which is like what DeFi is all about, really. Mm. Would you invest in Pied Piper? <laughs> what I invest in Pied Piper. We, uh, there's a lot of companies in the crypto space playing with what I'll call incentivized packet routing of various forms. Some of them are, are mixed nets. Some of them are, are not mixed nets. They're just like trying to forward packets faster, like do a decentralized CDN kind of a thing. Um, we have not pulled the trigger on any of those. Uh, I believe someone somewhere there is going to crack something and, and figure out something and make a lot of money. Um, whether it will be a privacy-driven mixed net or whether it will be sheer economic coordination and, and cost-driven uh, is, is less clear to me. Um, if I were to guess, I think it's easier to do the privacy version uh, because people like the people who care and know will pay. Um, and I think competing with like, Cloudflare on the CDN front is going to be nearly impossible. Um, and so we there's about four or so teams working on that stuff, all with some weird crypto angle to it that we kind of track. Um, none of them quite there yet, but it's plausible one of them could break out in a, in a big way. 
Yeah, man, that seems, I mean, from my perspective, which is like, like, I mean, I would, I certainly would not call myself uh, 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 super technical, like, I, you know, basic web technology to be building something that replaces AWS or, or cloud storage just seems like a, it seems like a difficult uh, area to assess from an investment perspective because so much of it is like the magic sauce, right? The ability to actually build this technology at scale um, as opposed, you know, helium seems like conceptually you can explain that concept and it's the business model that contains the innovation as opposed to just the pure technological execution potential, um, which yeah, makes it much more difficult, but interesting nonetheless. Uh, agree, yeah. Agreed that a lot of these are business model innovations. And, and so uh, like Helium is pretty obvious how it's a business model innovation. Live peer is less obvious, um, mm. but like there's, there's a general recurring, if you look at enough of these, I'll call it uh, decentralized uh, resource allocation projects. So whether they're computation driven or storage driven or bandwidth driven, uh, those are the kind of the three pr pr uh, fundamental primitives of computation. Um, uh, uh, like the, those, most of them aren't going to work, but uh, a couple of them, if they can figure out how to crack the latent supply problem uh, and like figure out how to route demand to it in an intelligent and effective manner, then like those could be enormous opportunities. Uh, because mm. effectively Uberizing or Airbnbizing some, you know, un under underutilized resource. Yeah, yeah. Do you think, um, you know, like we have, we're we're recording this now, just for listeners, August tenth. Do you? I mean, we're in a really precarious time with regard to the pandemic and the global economy and the U.S. issuing trillions of dollars of debt seemingly every month. What's your take on how that is likely to play out? It, it, I've talked to some people who seem really pessimistic, and they're like, the value of the dollar is going to become uh, inflated and were there's, um, I'm not sure if you follow Eric Weinstein and just like this general intellectual dark web. Are you familiar with that concept and these group of group of people? Uh, I, I do follow Eric Weinstein. I listen to his, his, his podcast regularly. I love it. The portal. Yeah. Really fantastic. He's so, he's so smart. The number of words he makes up on the fly is makes it really difficult to track, but he's incredibly brilliant. He's and him and like it, it's to, to an amazing degree. Yeah, yeah, I, I fully agree. Uh, and both him and Peter Thiel have the, the thesis that throughout, say, 1940 to early 1970s, the United States was on an economic boom that we were growing tremendously. And in the early 70s, we, we stopped growing uh, for a number of different reasons. And that since then, the, the, the past 50 years has been like a cannibalization of our markets to show growth, but there's not actual growth there, which... Uh, I've really, I've thought a lot about this, like in what sectors is there actual growth and what sectors are we cannibalizing other areas like education or capital markets? Um, not sure if you dove into this, into this idea much, but uh, I'm curious if you have any reactions to that or any thoughts on, on the United States growth potential and where we are. Yeah. So I, I, I'm not like a, I don't think I have a good sense of like kind of global economic history to, to like speak with confidence on the issue. My uh, intuition is uh, what, what I think is pretty clear is the amount of like regulatory capture and cronyism, at least in the American economy, has grown dramatically over the last 30 or 40 years. Um, it, like the healthcare system and like there's like this great chart that shows like number of administrators per physician like over the last 30 years. And like that number is like, you know, vertical line, whatever. 
And mm. look at the education system, right? I mean, like, it's very clear with like the prevalence of software, like we can do education better, but like, do you still go to a room with 30 kids in it and, you know, do that thing? Um, I understand like, it's like hard because of like the, the what, what COVID made everyone realize is that school is primarily socialized daycare um, and like, <laughs> and, like secondarily an educational institution. And we're all kind of, we forgot that because we took it for granted. So I, I admit that like, it's very easy to say software solves a problem when, when you discount the, the daycare part of, this, of the thing. But um, I, I'm fairly certain that like someone somewhere somehow will figure out like a much better educational model. Um, and so if you look at those two industries, which I think like are collectively like 35% of the economy or something, um, like the amount of pretty obvious regulatory capture and cronyism in both of those is, is pretty severe. Um, so my, my intuition is that like, at least directionally for like some major sectors of the economy, their argue, arguments are like almost certainly correct. How does that net out against like the growth of software and like the rise of the information age uh, is like unfair to me how to like net that, net that out at some sort of kind of global macro um, number. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I feel you. That makes sense to me. I, I feel also this um, indecisive, like an indecisive position on whether I think that there are you know, if you just look at the United States and look at, say, it's run for the last hundred years, is there, um, is there like boundaries that, you know, say like if you're bowling, you have the, you know, the, the boundary, boundary lanes. It, are, are we, is there forces that are pushing us back into stable growth or is, is it kind of like a snowball effect with uh, bureaucracy and uh, political games that are just consuming more and more of the GDP and healthcare and it's like there's this leech on the system uh, in healthcare in particular, but also in education, where th there just tends to be larger and larger masses uh, that are not really producing any value, like lobbying groups and back and forth money uh, on the level of like corporate power and, and political power. That I, I don't know. I I I wonder whether it's a uh, you know a Titanic headed for an iceberg, and there's really no other way about it, or if if it's kind of like th that the bigger it gets, the more obvious the problem gets and the more attention uh, is drawn to that problem and better solutions are proposed. I, I don't know. I mean, there's, it's, 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 it's interesting to me because it seems like it can play out multiple ways that are dramatically different for how, you know, you and I are about the same age. And so for the next 30, 40 years, like life could look dramatically different with how we organize society and no one, no one singularly, uh, dictates that it's kind of this collective attention and collective intelligence we deploy as to the sophistication of our voters and our sophistication of what we care about in the political party. Um, and, and, and so often, I, maybe there is some overlay back into crypto on this, but I think about how we make decisions collectively, you know, as a society and how that potentially can correlate or what can we learn uh, uh, from that with regard to crypto and decentralization. Like if you think about the the political voter uh, electorate, you know, our everyone in the country who votes, we're effectively individual nodes of computational power making the best assessment of what we think the direction uh, of the country should go, both on a, a local level and then a, a, a nationwide level, and then we cast that vote. And we not only cast it in the in the voting in the voting ballot, but we cast it every day on Twitter and on Facebook and conversations, which, which way we emphasize, you know, different ideas. And so often I'm just uh, surprised at how great ideas, great intentions can have such bad repercussions with implementation of these ideas. And 
I don't know. I was, I was thinking about, I don't know. Have you seen anything in the, in this, in this space of where crypto and politics call it politics being like how we manage our attention, uh, overlap, if there's anything in that space or we're just too early or that none of that even makes sense in the first place. Yeah. So I, I love that kind of, uh, rant you just, you just went on and it, it like, there's so many thematic tie-overs to, to crypto. Um, let me try and touch on a few of them. So I think the most basic and obvious one is just like censorship. It's very clear that like social media is like maybe public utility, pro probably public utility. I mean, like the Ed Williams, who's the former CEO of Twitter, called it like the global town square or whatever, um, which I think is like apt is like is like a, like means it's a utility. It's like a public good, right? Like the town square like mm -hmm. was a public good, and and so um, if you conceive of social media as some sort of public space. That means like politicians want to regulate it for some reason, um, and like the the censorship, you know, uh, calls from the left and the right are, are like it's it's totally untenable to be like Twitter or Facebook or any of these guys right now. Um, the the left is going to cancel you for not canceling enough people on the right, and the right <laughs> yeah. for like saying you're canceling them, like yeah. right, like it's it's totally intractable, and so like. Um, the, the attacks, like I hate to sound so dramatic, but like, at least in my lifetime, this is pretty clearly the last two years of like, by far the like strongest attacks on like First Amendment rights um, that I've, I've seen. Uh, I don't have a good sense for like this historically in, in the United States, but certainly in my lifetime, this is the worst it's been. Um, and and so like, we, we need better ways to reconcile like th this problem. And I don't, I don't know what a good solution is. What I can tell you is crypto is very good at producing censorship resistant media formats. Um, we, for example, just led an investment. We announced it a week ago in a, a company called Audius, uh, which is building a, a protocol for decentralized music streaming. Um, it's effectively a decentralized SoundCloud. Um, and like people are going to go put, you know, copyrighted music on here. Like that's going to happen. And then record labels are going to start issuing DMCA takedown requests. And like, we're going to see, you know, who wins that battle. Um, but like a core, core part of our thesis is that information should not be censorable. Right. And so like, and the, we're going to see that extended from, Bitcoin, which was just uncensorable money, to now we're getting to the point where we can have uncensor uncensorable media uh, in the form of audio. Uh, live stream does this for video. We've got uncensorable content storage already. So we're, we're seeing all these like primitives get built out. Um, and I expect people are going to start to build some very, very interesting applications on, on top of these uncensorable uh, foundations. So I think that's kind of one angle to the crypto thing that, that you just alluded to. I, I think the other one that's like a really interesting challenge is just like, like trust generally in society. Um, what like this whole uh, COVID thing is made pretty clear uh, to me is like how just kind of insane the world is right now, as for lack of a better word. Um, you've got like, I don't believe, like I don't believe the news anymore. Like I, I, I don't read mainstream news of any form. It, it's, it's not that like they're bad people or like they're like, the the incentives in how these organizations are run, um, both like the political ones, like the White House and the Congress, as well as the quote unquote apolitical ones, like there's always someone out there who has some motive. They're trying to like push either explicitly or implicitly, uh, and it, be it becomes very hard to take uh, to like believe facts around highly politicized issues like COVID. Um, and, and so I, I I like almost can't read the news anymore. Um, and like a lot of people look around, they're like, you know, it's just like the economy is like frozen and like, we're all kind of pretending this isn't here. And like this, you know, nothing makes sense. 
Um, and I think a lot of people are, are, gonna, are developing a really bad taste in their mouth and they want to be able to opt out. Um, or they want to be able to, 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 I think people are realizing like they want a sense of sovereignty and control. Um, and the whole kind of like web three subsector of the crypto ecosystem um, is really about, you know, own your own information, own your own data. Uh, and the example they give is like decentralized Facebook. We're not going to have decentralized Facebook anytime soon. That's an extraordinary technical problem to achieve, to, to pull off. But um, I think directionally, we're like moving it in that that, that way. Uh, and we'll be using some of these kind of primitives, that, uncensorable primitives that I just alluded to. Um, the, the difference will be not just the censorship resistance, but that you're going to invert the control and ownership model from one where you've got these big centralized institutions, whether they're companies or whether they're governments, uh, and you'll you'll flip the model where consumers will actually own their own stuff. Um, and I do think we'll see that as kind of a growing trend over the next decade. When when do you timing these things is is almost impossible in terms of like hitting hitting the 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 turning point on the hockey stick graph? But uh, I'm pretty confident on a long time horizon, this like suite of technologies will be kind of driving uh, a meaningful percentage of information and, and commerce on the internet. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it almost seems like how, how well everything I agree with everything you just said. I think how well that uh, the people in the elected positions of power understand this uh, dictates how we're how well our country is going to adapt to this inevitable future driven by software, driven by technology and just driven by humanity and, and nature, <laughs> more broadly speaking. And, 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 I, and I, I look at like where crypto is developing these hotspots geographically across the world in different different areas. And it, it seems to me mostly driven on uh, uh, like density of individuals where they're educated and motivated. And then also regulatory wise, where there's open rules, you know, Singapore, Estonia or other places. Um, it, it seems like I, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this, but how would you give um, our SEC and FinCEN and just generally like our federal government or state governments with regard to crypto law, crypto related laws, like what would, what would your scorecard be? Cause, cause I look around and think like, we're not, we're not terrible. I mean, we certainly learned the first go round around like late nineties that less rules on the internet is better. That allows things to happen. And then when there's mistakes, we can make, you know, reactive rules and regulations. Um, but it does seem to be this strain, like we're approaching this, this point where, uh, we're starting to get into the money bank. Like, I think the internet was fine because government's like, you guys can go build your communication and, you know, application layer and have fun doing that. But we're still going to print money out of the Federal Reserve. But now it's, it's, it's it, to me, it flirts with a different, um, a, a different layer of concern from the, the powers that be in Washington, D.C., and I, I just wonder how that plays out because it, it doesn't seem to me like there can be two futures for all that much longer where the Federal Reserve prints money whenever they want and dictates interest rates. And then we also have like, you know, crypto exchanges and money floating around the cryptosphere in the hundreds of billions and trillions of dollars that we use to pay people and, you know, exchange commerce and remittances and everything else. It's like there's two layers that seem to be headed for a confrontation. And I don't know if it, it seems to me that the, the future of the the, uh, the nations that adapt best to this wave of technology of decentralization will be the ones that just jump on board full steam ahead. But that means giving up power. It, it means giving up the centralized control, which will probably make the nation itself stronger, but it'll remove the 
uh, influence or the leverage from the people who dictate and print money in the first place. So I, <laughs> I don't know if, if you have any reactions to all that, but it does seem like a, just an interesting uh, cross-section between, between those areas. Yeah, I mean, like, the, the simplistic view is that, like, all power is corrupt, like, all power corrupts, and therefore all powers are corrupting, and, and that, like, if you have anyone in a position of power, they're going to abuse it, and so, like, you can't trust politicians and fiat currencies, and that's, like, the kind of, like, libertarian, extreme, you know, Bitcoin maximalism view of the world, and, and the conclusion of that is that Bitcoin becomes everything, um, and I think that's pretty stupid. Um, the, 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 like, one thing being an entrepreneur and investor for the last you know, eight or nine years of my life has taught me is that, like, the world... Uh, it, it's very easy to, to like see the logical conclusions of these things, but like the world is actually very messy. It's full of entropy and it's very heterogeneous. Um, and actually, pretty, it's pretty rare that you like get a single standard or the thing that wins um, on the basis of pure logical reason. Um, so you have to like think about path dependencies and how these things play out. Um, and so, let me give you some examples of like weird com confounding forces that like make it very hard to get to the, the Bitcoin maximalism view of the world. Um, so the first is that like we all here on this podcast, as you and I, you know, generally agree that like this inflation from the government and the, the debt and everything is probably bad and probably backfires at some point. Um, but like the same thing is also generally happening for most other countries as well. Um, and like the US dollar is still like the global you know, hegemonic currency. And like I think something like 55 or 60% of global debt is denominated in dollars, which means the debts are paid. I mean, people have to repay it in dollars, which means they have to buy dollars. Um, and so uh, like th there's a lot of demand for dollars generally. Dollar is still like the world standard. And like if other countries are also doing the same general things, the spending and, and printing that they otherwise wouldn't be doing, that is probably actually good net for the dollar because it's just going to drive people away from like the Argentinian peso and Lebanese whatever and like whatever all these currencies are and into the dollar. Um, it's, un it's less likely that people go from uh, their local fiat to Bitcoin than it is they go from their local fiat to dollars because the dollar is like the global standard for these things and Bitcoin is volatile and scary. So... Um, and, and like crypto payment rails specifically are, are making it much, 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 much easier to export dollars to people all over the world. Um, like, you know, Tether and, and USDC are the two largest stable coins. Uh, those are both have market caps are measured in the billions. I think, I think they're like collectively 12 billion or something between the two of them. That's growing like three X this year. Um, and so we're going to just see that trend generally continue uh, and make it really, really easy to export dollars to people all over the world. Um, so it's like, like so so this this bubble so to speak like the dollar bubble could continue for like another decade or maybe even longer um one thing that's funny is if you look back on 2009 2010 when we had the first like qe1 qe2 and qe3 before we now jokingly have qe infinity uh, but remember all the gold bugs like everyone was like oh my god inflation is here like the dollar's still over and like it's been 10 years and like they were just wrong um now <laughs> like showing up and like asset prices like real estate and stocks and stuff but it like definitely has not shown up in terms of consumer spending um, and like, so they were at least a decade too early, 82. Um, and, and I look at, at, so, so that's like one, like countervailing, you know, I think force, um, against mm -hmm. the like, uh, Bitcoin, Bitcoin maximalism, like hyper Bitcoinization thesis. Now it could just be that we're all just prolonging the bubble and the bubble's going to explode in 10 years and it's going to be even worse then. And then we're all going to go to Bitcoin and like, look, like, yeah, there's some chance that like plays out, but uh, I'm, I'm pretty skeptical. Uh, the, the, the. Like that world environment is like so scary. I don't want to think about it. Like, yeah, you might have each Bitcoin be worth $50 million, but like the state of the world, if that happens, is like a bad place to be. Like that's like Mad Max stuff. So yeah. So yeah. we just don't want to be betting on that on that future in any any real way. Um so so like yeah, like it's it feels 
clear the status quo like shouldn't be able to resist like the logic and the math doesn't make sense but also like it's it's funny money they literally make it up out of nowhere and everyone is better off believing this like the merry-go-round is still going around even if it's actually frozen um and so these things can, can persist in, in much weirder ways than we would ever hope for yeah yeah do you what, what i i i think that's a, a really uh interesting observation I, I agree with you do you think that the bitcoin this is kind of a basic crypto question just from my own ignorance do you think the, the Bitcoin volatility is a function of the smaller market cap of Bitcoin relative to larger global currencies? Like if Bitcoin was a hundred or a thousand times its, its market cap, would it be more stable intrinsically? Uh, yeah, so there's plenty of data that shows this. If you look at like Bitcoin over time, like uh, realized volatility has decreased over time um, as market cap has increased. Um, mm -hmm. That's both intuitive and empirically correct. Mm -hmm. Like that will continue to be the case uh, moving forward. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So it does. It, it. I wonder if it's it's somewhat like. I wonder if these things operate on a, um, like some deeper laws of just how the how the universe works and how how specifically how how um, like if you think of human beings as just distributed computational systems as kind of dry and robotic as that sounds, that each person has incentive to do what's best for them, but then what's best for them is best for everyone else. And just like honeybees, you know, they go out and find pollen. And when they come back, they get rewarded and they get the dopamine kick. And that dopamine kick is really our form of currency, which is stored wealth. And the way I, 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 I'm always interested in how, how language played out, like the fact that English is, uh, except for China and maybe some other large, uh, countries, India, eh, India is like 90, 90 plus percent English speaking. So English played out as like, the worldwide language for really the internet it seemed like the colonization of people across the world spread english but then with with the internet being so um cross uh national cross borders that we needed kind of a centralized layer to communicate with each other and i wonder if just bitcoin becomes if, if it is that and will continue to be that will there be just be where there'll be some kind of uh similarities um metaphorically between how language plays out where you have a bunch of small, you know, hundreds or thousands of individual languages. And then you have, you know, English, which everyone uses as a common uh, communication layer. And if, if Bitcoin becomes that same by analogy for crypto, I don't know, maybe that's, maybe that is a useless metaphor, but it seems like it could make sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. It's possible. Yeah. The, the reason English is kind of the global language standard is like the function of the British, you know, empire, right? Like imperialism for hundreds of years and, you know, conquests and killing off the people and all those terrible things. But like, that's the reason that English is like mm. the global standard. Um, and then obviously the American uh, hegemony since World War II is, you know, perpetuated that. Um, and like, you know, that's, that's a big reason. The other big reason is that like basically all science and math um, is, is done in English. Um, and so like for all basic education and like STEM, right, like in China and India and Europe and wherever you are, it's almost all taught in English. So because uh, all the notation and everything is. And so th there's a real strong network effect there um, that obviously has a lot of strong American leanings, leanings to it. Um, I, I look at you know, big, the, the, the question with, with crypto is, do you just put dollars on crypto payment rails, um, in which case that spreads the hege hegemony of the dollar? Or do people opt out of the, the dollar and you know move to our new financial, uh, you know, new financial system, monetary system entirely, uh, which you know could be Bitcoin or something else? Hmm. Yeah. Um, switching gears a little bit. What, what other things are you thinking about? I mean, what what do you see kind of 
floating across your desk or things you're thinking about and contemplating, whether it's specific deals or the future of crypto or something related to it? I mean, what's what's generally top of mind for, for Mr. Kyle? Um, yeah, I mean, so, you know, this whole decentralized finance thing, um, it's like kind of talk of the town right now in crypto. It's mostly happening on top of Ethereum, like 90% plus is happening on top of Ethereum. Uh, it, it's, it's definitely the future of finance. Like if you like get a MetaMask wallet and like go like browse around to like six of the different crypto apps uh, and like DeFi apps and like interact with them, it's actually like magical. You don't deal with wires mm-hmm. and like bank account numbers and like KYC. It's, it's, it's a really, really phenomenal user experience once you're in that system. Um, mm-hmm. The problem with it is that like it's slow and the fees are really high. Like, like I was like, uh, like a transaction this morning we were like joking about making was a $50 gas fee. Um, like it's just um, like obviously you're not going to expand financial inclusion when gas fees are fifty dollars. Um, yeah. and, and so there's this big problem on Ethereum today of just like the system is like we can see the future. You just like it's not there yet. But like it's so obvious if you actually like interact with five of these apps. And so yeah, um, one of our portfolio companies we've been on starting two years ago and we, we've invested across multiple rounds is a company called Solana and they they built a new blockchain that's super high performance, super fast, super low latency. Um, it, it's about as close to the limits of physics as you can get in terms of like thinking about data propagation around getting to many nodes around the world um, and does some very clever things with parallel transaction processing to, to speed things up quite a bit. And um, the system produces blocks every 400 milliseconds for context. Bitcoin is 10 minutes and Ethereum is 15 seconds. Um, so it's super fast, super high throughput, super low latency, super low gas fees. Um, and uh, our hope for Solana has always been that someone's going to build a decentralized exchange on top of it. Um, so like our dream came true a couple weeks ago, uh, uh, one of the, I think it's the fourth or the fifth largest derivatives exchange in crypto. It's called FTX. It's a team based in Hong Kong. Uh, they run it and FTX said they're going all in on DeFi and they're building a, a decentralized exchange on top of Solana. They're calling it Serum. Uh, and Serum is what I would call the Holy Grail of DeFi, which is a central limit order book on chain. Um, and so the beauty of the system is that you get all the benefits of, of crypto, it's censorship resistant, it's permissionless, it's, it's global, it's, it's got everyone, you know, like it's completely peer to peer, there's no central intermediary, like all those benefits. Um, but you also get the benefit of traditional centralized markets, which is the central limit order book. Um, the central limit order book is like, I get, and it's not a question in my view, but like it is the correct way to price assets. The crypto ecosystem today is playing with all kinds of like clever automated market maker um, financial constructions, which are like, it's cool to see it happen. But like, there's zero doubt in my mind that the central limit order book is like the correct way to price assets. Um, and these other things are like fun, but not going to ever be central limit order book. And so, uh, like, I've been waiting for the day to see central limit order book come on chain because then you get the benefit mm-hmm. of, of CFI with the benefits of DeFi. Uh, and so, Serum is launching in like a week or two. Um, they announced it publicly a week ago, two weeks ago, and uh, I'm I am incredibly excited to see. Uh, this thing happened because I think the light bulb is going to go off for a lot of people around the world when they say, wow, like it's a global peer-to-peer permissionless censorship resistant order book. Uh, that's like, that is, that is like, I think going to be like looked back on in history as like a breakthrough in human, like human innovation. Wow. That's cool. And they have a, their monetization is a, they have a token. I'm not even familiar with it. FTX serum. Uh, so there's there's two tokens here particularly. We've been invested in Solana for over two years, and we're large investors in Serum as well. Solana is the base layer token of the blockchain, the power of the blockchain, uh, and then Serum is the token for the exchange. 
Um, you, you can, the, the serum token gives you things like discounts. Um, the system produces some profits. And so it'll like use those profits to buy tokens and burn them. Um, so it's got some kind of direct value accrual mechanisms. Um, if you're familiar at all with uh, other exchange tokens in crypto, like finance, for example, mm -hmm. like, you know, directionally pretty similar. Mm. What other uh, projects or companies do you wish existed that you don't see out there yet? Uh, I mean, one area we continue to look for, uh, and we want to make a bet on, I already alluded to earlier, was um, incentivized mixed net routing. Um, someone is going to figure out whether it's decentralized, or I should say, whether it's Tor with a token or something else, or some sort of decentralized VPN play or, or something. Someone is going to figure out something in that space that meaningfully increases privacy, uh, network layer privacy on the internet um, for like consumer applications. Someone's going to figure it out. Mm. Um, hmm. and, and so love that space. Um, definitely want to make some bets there. Um, and then, are you a fan of a are you a fan of a, a, a BAT basic attention token in the Brave project? Uh, I I am. Uh, I know Brendan Ike, who's the founder of Brave, pretty well. We, we chat uh, pretty regularly. Um, he's been thinking about this issue for a long time, um, and they've they've run some experiments that they've written about publicly on handful of times on their blog. Um, so I. I Kind of track with him, you know what what's happening in that space, and trying to figure out the right way to, to make the bet there. But certainly, Brave is um, a very, very, very well positioned uh, piece of software and and ethos aligned company, who, if the right software existed, would be a very good distribution vector to get both the supply mm. and the demand side of that market going. Mm. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, I love that. I love that team and that just the concept generally of you know. Publishers going straight to the consumers of web. Yes, sir. Cool, man. Uh, what about outside of crypto? Tell me, what what are you what are you into outside of like making bets on crypto companies? Uh, sorry, I don't I don't process. Is there anything outside? Of <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, uh, no, in all, in all seriousness, um, it's summertime. I love wakeboarding, um, wake surfing. So get out there pretty frequently on the weekends uh, on boat. Uh, I, I used to go to SoulCycle a lot. Um, that obviously is done for a while these days. So I trained, I bought a bike, bicycle and I now bike outside. Um, so I've gotten really into cycling in the last few months. Uh, it's been pretty bad the last 30 days in Texas. It's just so hot right now, but it'll cool down yeah. soon. Um, so those two things are really helping me stay sane. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I used to live down in Austin for uh, about 10 months and it was uh, during the summer months. And I remember it just being... This is 2013, 2014, and I remember being so freaking humid and hot, um, and uh, and low income taxes, so <laughs> not bad. Um, cool, man. What what are you looking for? Is there anything that you know we have listeners out there that are tuning in? Are there things that would help you multi-coin um, opportunities or projects you think that people could get connected on? And then how how can people reach you? Mention that too, and uh, LinkedIn or Twitter or wherever you're most active? Uh, yeah, so in terms of opportunities to engage, actually we're, we're hiring right now, we're hiring an analyst. Um, if you go to my Twitter account, like the pinned tweet um, has a link to the analyst role. So um, if you're interested in working at a crypto fund, uh, you're gonna learn about a lot of crazy things. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a wild job, uh, a lot of fun. Um, in terms of how to reach me generally on the internet, I'm very accessible. Um, go to my Twitter, uh, my Twitter name is uh, my name. So at Kyle Samani. Uh, on Twitter, uh, I generally respond to DMs. Uh, my DMs are open, so like, ping me anytime, tweet at me, whatever. But I'm I'm very accessible on the interwebs. 
Cool. Well, Mr. Kyle Samani, congrats on all your progress, man. And I wish you the best in uh, improving and investing in all the coolest companies of the future. Hey, hey, Mike, thanks so much for having me on. This was a blast. Love kind of diving into all the like the like kind of philosophical ethos, like societal level questions on crypto. That was that was a fun chat. <laughs> yeah, it was fun. All right, my man. I'll talk to you soon. If you're still listening, consider giving us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. We really appreciate it. We also now have a Patreon page where if you feel generous and you'd like to help us continue to produce the show, please contribute. Anything you can would be greatly appreciated. We've self-funded the show for over seven years now out of our own pockets, and it is not free. So any contribution you could make is greatly appreciated. If you'd like us to bring on any other guests to the show, just reach out on Twitter at around the coin we'd love to hear from you thank you so much really and hope you enjoy the next show mary redeemed a fifty thousand dollar cash prize playing chumba casino this year i was only playing for fun so winning this was a dream come true chumba casino is america's number one social casino experience it's serious fun with over 80 casino style games to choose from you too could win life-changing amounts of cash be like mary log on to chumbacasino.com and give them a world that's chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary void or prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply see website for details the voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner with the lucky land slots you can get lucky just about anywhere this is your captain speaking uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky no no nothing like that it's just these cash prizes add up quick so i suggest you sit back keep your tray table upright and start getting lucky play for free at luckylandslots.com are you feeling lucky no purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.